All right. Well, I am excited to be with you guys this week. I, I, don't, I look forward to this time more than any time during the week. So I'm thrilled to get to continue this sermon series. We're calling it Rooted because we're looking back. I know some of you are hanging in there strong with the history, and we're looking back at our history to understand our identity. What was it that birthed this movement that became the largest church in the U.S. at the beginning of the country's history, and, and what in looking at history, we understand our identity so we know where we're going. We know when we get off, a little off course too. So I uh, hope you're enjoying this series. We're in week three of the series, and this is the last time we'll see this slide. So we're going to, the town hall meetings, the last town hall meeting is today at 3 p.m., last one. So if you haven't been to one and you really, really want to go, today's the day. It's your last chance at 3 p.m. Pastor David does about a 35 to 40 minute presentation and then all the questions. You can ask anything you want to ask and he will do his best to answer with something other than I don't know. But there will be some I don't know. So be mindful of that today at 3 p.m. Um, how are we do, doing with the cold and flu season? We under the weather, family under the weather, a little bit, yeah. I'm telling you, when any research is done over this cold and flu season, I think it will have historic, they're gonna look back on this time with historic proportions. Some, I've never heard in my adult life the cold and flu season lasting this long, affecting as many families as it's affected, as many times and in as many ways, I just, it's unbelievable, it's unreal. So press on through cold and flu season, um, we've talked a lot about John Wesley, and this is, this is a little fun. I'm going to read you some health advice from Mr. John Wesley. The air we breathe is of great consequence to our health. Those who have been long abroad in easterly or northerly winds should drink some warm pepper tea on going to bed or a draft of toast and water. Coffee and tea are extremely hurtful to persons who have weak nerves. Tender persons, so all you tender people out there, tender persons ought to constantly go to bed about nine and rise at four or five. <laughs> so, yeah, you're all tender, so watch your bedtime. Those who read or write much should learn to do it standing, otherwise it will impair their health. Cold bathing. Cold bathing is of great advantage to health. It prevents abundance of diseases. It promotes perspiration, helps circulation of the blood, and prevents danger of catching cold. Tender persons should pour pure water upon the head before they go in and walk swiftly. To jump in with the head foremost is too great a shock to nature. So maybe John Wesley invented the polar bear club. I don't know. I don't know. So I, I, I've discovered that this week. I had totally forgotten. He wrote this book called Primitive Physic. And it became one of the best-selling books in the 18th century, in the 1700s. So you can look it up. It's, it's a lot longer. This is just from the preface. I was just cherry-picking some fun things from the preface of this book. So Wesley writes this book. In 1747, he doesn't put his name to it. I don't know if it's because it's controversial, if it was a little pseudoscience, I don't know. But he puts his name to it eventually in 1760. And it, 
and, and everybody reads it. And so I bring this up because it's out of Wesley. We're, we're, we've talked a lot about the Methodist movement. What we're gonna talk about today is the way in which Wesley approached faith in a holistic way, with his head, with his heart, and with his hands. And this book represents that. All the knowledge that was needed to write this book. When you read this book, it actually is full of a lot of practical advice that we would just roll our eyes and be like, of course, water's healthy to drink and stuff like that. Some of the stuff in this book is really obvious. Some of it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. But it was out of Wesley's heart for the poor common folk who couldn't, who couldn't afford doctors right? So he writes this book. He uses his mind, all the knowledge that he accumulated to write this book. It's his heart for his neighbor. And he, he uses obviously his hands to write the book and he puts it in the hands almost of most folks that live in England for the 17, throughout the 18th century, the 1700s. So they had a constant source of health and well-being. And of course, with Wesley, everything is spiritual, Right? The reason he writes in the preamble for his book as to why this book's even necessary is because our souls are sick. It's the fall. The way in which we rebel against God's love, Wesley diagnoses the scene and sees, you know, everything's spiritual. For him, the reason that we're physically sick, the reason the world's in the state that it's in is because the sickness down deep in our souls is, is the ultimate cause of all that. So, Wesley, there's just nothing that's off limits with Wesley. No, no sin that's too private and too small and nothing that's too big. So he writes this book, Primitive Physic, which I think represents in a nice way Wesley's holistic approach to faith with his head, with his heart, and with his hands. And so um, we're gonna bounce around a little bit in the Bible today. So we've got a few short passages and I want us to start as we talk about the mind or the head and its role in our lives of faith. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say in Romans chapter 12, verses one to two. We'll have this on the screens for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the world has its own pattern and its own logic. And it's easy for us to fall in to the ways of the world and the ways of thinking, like us before them, myself before others, pleasure before purpose, money before honor, ambition and getting ahead before love. It's, it's easy to fall in to this kind of thinking, the way the world thinks and the patterns that we see all around us. And I think, we think about head, heart, hands. I feel like our head, our minds is probably the function that is underutilized in our lives of faith. And I don't mean that just for us specifically here at First Methodist, but just generally speaking, I don't know that we often think about using our minds to the extent that we're called to in our lives of faith. And not only does Paul remind us that the renewing of our minds is so important for us to test and approve God's will, 
But it's also important for us as we think about um, the, the vision of truth that God has in the, in the midst of all of reality, the way we engage with the world. Our minds are so important for us to make the case that it is Christianity, it's our faith that's the reality, that's the map, the ultimate map of reality on which everything else is placed. That's sort of what C.S. Lewis came to understand. And I know I'm probably wearing you out with quoting C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to back off the next couple weeks, I promise. Because I, I know this about myself. He was a spiritual mentor for me that just got to me early on in my life. So he's never far away. And C.S. Lewis is contrasted interesting, interestingly with Wesley. Because Wesley's so much, I think if, if there's one, one faculty that Wesley emphasizes more than anything else... It's maybe his heart. We talked about his heart strangely warmed in that experience. For C.S. Lewis, he had a conversion of the mind. That's how C.S. Lewis comes to faith. He had an intellectual conversion. He was an ardent atheist. Many of you might know that about his story. And he's connected to Oxford like Wesley is, although he's much later. He, he lived in the 20th century. And he also uh, was in the Church of England like Wesley. And C.S. Lewis said this about his conversion experience. He said, and this comes from his book, Surprised by Joy. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> So C.S. Lewis writes in this book, Surprised by Joy, about how reluctant, like he kind of was drug in to believing in God, kicking and screaming. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a conversion, not to Christianity at first, but theism, just a general belief in God. Two years later, after a long conversation with that, that genius of a man, J.R.R. Tolkien, who created the Lord of the Rings, after a long conversation, he eventually converts to Christianity and becomes, he, but, but it's, but it's an, a conversion of the mind before it is of the heart, before it is of the hands. And, and Lewis would ultimately get to this place where he believed that it was Christianity. That was the true vision of reality. That was the map on which everything else is placed. He, he famously said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. You see, we live in a time, I think, where we try to compartmentalize reality. We, we are one way sometimes, I think, at school. We're another way at business. We're another way at church. We have, it wasn't until the, the modern period and the postmodern period, continuing on into the postmodern period, that we create subdiscipline after subdiscipline after subdiscipline. So you can get degrees in underwater basket weaving and uh, postmodern liberation art theory and know very little about other disciplines. We become so specialized that we create all of these different compartments of reality. And that is just a foreign concept to the writers of scripture, to ancient and medieval folks, to, to Paul, 
right, who understands that this renewing of our minds to test God's will, that God's will knows no boundaries. God's will permeates all of reality. So the way in which we try to create borders and boundaries and put up a wall that says uh, psychology over here and history over here and the music wings over there, like these lines don't exist when it comes to the reality of God's will for our lives. Our minds understand this, that God's will has no boundaries and we've kind of lost that in our modern and postmodern age. We used to have men like John Wesley, and, and you may know the famous philosopher, Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas, or Copernicus, the heliocentric model that the sun's in the middle of the solar system, right? Not the earth. All these wonder, amazing men of faith that push their minds to the limit as an act of worship. So they learned all these other disciplines. So they they could stand with the conviction of the hope that they have in the midst of all these competing philosophies and worldviews. Like John Wesley famously calls himself a man of one book, which highlights the primacy of scripture in his life, the rule of faith and practice that, that he, he held scripture to such high regard. But Wesley owned over a thousand books and he'd read about music and politics and medicine and theology while he's on that horse. 10 trips around the earth throughout his life, going to preach in the midst of all that he's reading. And he chastised, he, he challenged one of his preachers once and said this, he said, what has exceedingly hurt you in time past, nay, and I fear to this day, is want of reading. I scarcely ever knew a preacher read so little. You wrong yourself greatly by omitting this. You can never be a deep preacher without it any more than a thorough Christian. So Wesley, again, challenges us to, to grow and to renew our minds, to grow in knowledge and depth of insight across these wide-ranging areas and disciplines so, so that we can always stand faithfully with the hope that we have, like the Apostle Paul, who stands in the midst of the, the I always say this wrong, like the Oropagus or something, he, he stands in the midst of sort of this, this Greek philosophical world where all these Greek philosophical worldviews, these Stoic philosophers and these Cynic philosophers and these Epicureans and these people that, that think faith is a secret, these Gnostic people, he knows their language, like he knows their thought process. And he says, you know, you guys talk about this unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God and how he has been made known in Jesus. Like Paul is this phenomenal example of, of taking the languages of all these competing worldviews and molding them to articulate the truth of the gospel. So if the utilization of our minds, which I think maybe we don't utilize our minds as much in our lives of faith, if it's, if it's the least functioning, I think, I think the, the part that, we, that functions the most for us is our heart. And we all come to worship and we, we, we faithfully express with our heart our love in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray. Wesley, in his heart strangely warmed, obviously the, the way we talked about his, this plight for his neighbor and for the poor that he has, he definitely has a heart of faith. And Paul talks about the relationship of the heart and faith in this way a little bit before the passage we just read in Romans 10, 9 to 10, Paul says, 
if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess, profess your faith and are saved. And I think a lot of us, we, we, we believe down deep in our hearts, but I don't know that we're always as aware of that connection of what comes out of our mouths. And Paul is saying here, in accord with Proverbs 4.23, that you remember above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. The mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. And that relationship, I, I know for many of us, we believe deep down are we aware of how it connects to our speech? And I know when it comes to worship, it's kind of nice and warm and we, we articulate what our heart is full of, God's grace and mercy in our lives. But when we leave this place and when we live out, is our heart steady or is our heart a storm of emotion that just bounces back with the waves of, of getting stuck in traffic and the responsibilities in our lives that pile up and, and the daily tasks and everything in my life now seems to be going wrong and we sway back and forth and what is it then that we say what is our heart full of in those moments there was once a prominent Chicago lawyer who had a large family and he was very successful in the city of Chicago and he invested uh, in real estate in the northern area north of downtown and he was very successful. His law firm was very successful. And in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire reduced the city to ashes. And he lost almost all of his investment in real estate. And a couple years after this happens, after their four-year-old son dies of scarlet fever, he sends his wife and four other children across the Atlantic to a family getaway. And he's trying to, again, put their life back together and tidy up some things. So he sends them over to England. And as their ship is traveling over the Atlantic Ocean, it comes upon an iron steam ship. And the two ships can't maneuver around each other and they collide. And his wife gets to England and sends him a telegram that says saved alone. And he lost his four babies. And as he goes to meet his wife across the Atlantic, to meet her alone, when he's in the middle of the ocean about where the ships collided, he writes this, when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrow like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul and Lord haste the day when thy faith shall be sight the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So those are the first and, and the last verse of that song. He writes the whole song on that journey. The whole song in the midst of this unspeakable tragedy, Horatio Spafford. 
writes, it is well, it is well with my soul. He worships God. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And Wesley preached 40,000 sermons in his life because his heart was full of, of God's unmerited, undeserved, crazy love that changed his life, that made all the difference in the world, that set John Wesley free. So our heads and our hearts are of critical importance. And I think today the Methodist movement is most known for our hands, for the way in which that we serve um, with our hands. And early on, even when John Wesley and Charles, his brother, were early, were young in ministry, young priests in Oxford still, they followed William Morgan into the prisons and preached and, and had worship services and met with inmates, especially those who had a death sentence. Because at the time, the English penal code had a lot of offenses that could end, that could, that could cause you to have a death sentence. And so from early on in their ministry, they understand that this inward transformation of the gospel had to have an outward expression that had to be translated with, with service. And that it, this is always the movement of faith. From the inside out, if Christ is to be revealed, that's the movement from the inside out. And from early on, they were in the prisons. The Wesleys took Matthew 25 very seriously. Of course, many of you know, part of Matthew 25 says this, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? When, when did all this happen? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. John Wesley called this part of faith, this acting out our faith, acts of mercy. And so for Wesley, we see that it's so crucial. We've talked about the core values of our church, that everybody has a next step. We talked about that week one. Week two, that shared lives lead to changed lives, the way in which it's so important for us to have accountability in small groups. And serving Jesus, our, another core conviction and core value of this church is serving Jesus means serving others. That, that as we serve others, our love for God, that Jesus says all the law and the prophets really just hangs on two things, love God and love neighbor. That it, as our love for God increases, so too should our love of neighbor increase. And we get closer and closer to each other and relationships of truth and relationships of justice and relationships of mercy, that these two commandments, these two calls run right alongside one another. Charles Wesley calls God's love like a lodestone, which is, which is just a weird word for a magnet. It's like a magnet that just draws, draws us to himself. And just as we're drawn closer to God, we should also be drawn close to each other. Wesley didn't overlook anything. <laughs> we talked about a bit how self-obsessed and self-occupied he was. There was just nothing that was off limits. No sin too private and small and nothing too big. Nothing in society that plagued society that was too great. I mean, six days before the guy dies, he's writing a letter to William Wilberforce encouraging him to continue on in his mission to eradicate slavery. Wesley said this of slavery. He said, it's an atrocious villainy, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. 
He encouraged Wilberforce to press on and to not grow weary of well-doing till, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun shall vanish away before it. That's our roots. Those are pretty good roots. Those are pretty good roots. And this movement would, would go on to inspire other traditions and other forms of Christianity like the Salvation Army, which is pretty, pretty much alive and well in our day and time. William Booth, before he was the first general, before he created the Salvation Army, he was a local Methodist preacher. And I, I mentioned week one where the Methodist movement stands. It's the granddaughter of the Catholic Church and the grandmother of the Pentecostal Church. This movement births the holiness churches like the Assemblies of God and the Churches of God and the Church of Nazarene and any independent congregation that calls itself Wesleyan or Methodist in some form all traces back the genesis of this movement of this time. So this rich and wonderful legacy, head, heart, and hands. And so how are we doing living out our faith in those ways? Because I think for many of us, we probably have a preference. Some of us are more head people. Some of us are more heart people. And I think it's fair to say for a lot of us, we could all grow. We have busy lives. We could all probably do a little more with our hands. And I want to challenge us this morning to, to ask the question to God in prayer, what does our city need? What do we, what's our neighborhood need? Whether it's Mansfield or Midlothian or Arlington or our surrounding area, what is it? How, how can we as a body of Christ who, who live into this idea that we, we understand there are no compartments in this. There's no compartments to reality. We can't section off. You know, we try to create that separation between church and state. We know in some cases we have to behave a little differently, but we're called as much to the public square as the private. There are no compartments to reality and so is it with our bodies that our head and our heart and our hands work seamlessly to make Christ known in this world. So, so what, what's Mansfield need? What's our neighborhood need? Because we wanna be a church that's here to help. We wanna be a church that's here to help lead people to Jesus. We wanna be a church that's here to help Mansfield and the surrounding area thrive. We wanna be a people that's here to help folks who are homeless find a home we want to be a body that is here to help so that we live out our faith with our head, with our heart, and with our hands. So I, I challenge you to, to pray that and, and please share with me what you think it is that we need to do because Pastor David and I are going to compare notes and come up with a plan of, of maybe some new ministries and new creative ways that we can be a church that is here to help. Will you please pray with me? Holy God, I thank you. I thank you for the presence of your spirit that you've not left us orphaned, that you're with us always. And so Lord, raise up in us some dreams and some vision, a vision for, for our city and for our neighborhood, wherever it is that we live. God, help us, give us, give us a vision to serve, to get our hands dirty to help those who can't help themselves. 
to help be the people that listen when no one else will listen, Lord. Give us grace and patience. And give us a heart for justice, Lord, so that we can help bring your kingdom. So that we can be an embodiment of the sign of of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, give us big dreams. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.